Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, Herstory Heroes. We are back. Thank you so much for your patience while we have been on a just a week-long hiatus, really. Well, really, we went on a, a week-long hiatus, did one episode, and then went on another week-long hiatus. You know what? When you get laryngitis and then your world implodes, it's hard to squeeze in recording a podcast, but nevertheless, we persist and we are back. Welcome to Whining About Herstory, the podcast where two longtime gal pals, besties with breasties. That was a new one. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but it's beautiful and it it's is. so it's accurate. So uh drink wine and chat about women from history you have probably never heard of. I always say probably because I don't want to discredit anyone who's like super on top of their women's history and they're like, I know everyone. Don't talk down to me. And to you, I say cheers, ma'am or sir or them. Well, however you identify, cheers to you. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And we're so happy that you tuned in today. We are back we are emotionally healthy. We are physically, <laughs> relatively emotionally healthy, physically healthy. I'll, I'll fix that. And we are ready to chat about some badass babes from history. Woot woot. Woot woot. So Kelly picked our wine this week. I've been waiting to drink this since I bought this like over a month ago now. Um, this is a local Minnesota wine from the Cannon River Winery. It's called Feisty Bitch. Yes. Um, and it's their rosé wine. And on their website, it says, This semi-sweet rosé's lively bouquet of honeydew and rose petal combines with juicy fruit flavors of strawberry and lime, leading to a bright finish. Also, the back of this bottle, do you it, mind if I says, read it? It says, Bitch less, wine more. Well, and then it's got all of these great adjectives like feisty, smooth, dramatic, vibrant, zesty, luscious, mischievous, active, tart, flirty, like everything on there. And I'm like, I kind of want this wine to be my life. Also, uh, Herstory headcanon here, I ship feisty bitch and sweet bitch. Right. Like, Sweet bitch is super adorable and like, oh, like, I'm sorry, I don't mean to bother you. And feisty bitch is like, I am here, bow down to me. And they just right. compliment each other really well. I just found out that they have a wine club. I'll have to look into that after the show. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. But yeah, so it's really good. And like I said, it. I think I think that's a kind of our caption too. Bitch less, wine more. Really, I mean, that's basically what this show is about. As much as we bitch, the whole point is to wine about herstory and i don't know if we've ever said this on the show and maybe you got it and i'm over explaining like do you get it do you get it do you get it but whenever women talk about something that's genuinely shitty we're told not to whine so much well fuckers we're taking that word back and we are going to whine for the next hour about badass ladies and the obstacles they've overcome to be badass ladies this is going to be like the worst clink. We're using our plastic glasses again. Yeah, shout out. We talk about them all the time and they don't know we exist, but shout out to Wine and Crime. They're also a Minnesota-based podcast and they have uh, fucking patriarchy plastic wine glasses. And we, Kelly bought one of her own and then yep. I bought her one as a gift, not knowing she already had one. Actually, so, I didn't have mine yet. Oh, that's I had, right. I had Patreoned them 
So I hadn't gotten mine yet. And then you gave me yours. And then I'm like, hey, I have two now. This is perfect. So we both get to drink out of fucking patriarchy wine glasses. And I think we can cheers to being back. I yeah, We're going to try to get on a more regular schedule. Things are going better. So plastic clink cheers. Clink. Clink. We I don't ha- even we, know if you guys could hear that. I don't think they could. We have to say it. It's a really good wine. It's very tart at the end. But it's good. It is. Like, if you like something sweet and kind of uh, fruity, this is definitely the wine for you. But it does have an edge to it. Yeah. It's like like a woman who's in a pretty sundress, but then she shoots you this glare for staring at her too long. Like, I will murder you. And I will look beautiful doing it, you fucker. Right. (laughs) So... I believe you have a say their name. Today. I do have a say their name. So actually, I uh, I texted this article to Kelly far too long ago. That's like you did what? in an or in order to remember it, and I forgot about it until just recently. So I am a big fan of the the band Churches, and they're like a synth pop thing. You might know their song, "The Mother We Share." That was really popular years ago. The mother we share, na 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 na. Please don't sue me. Mm-hmm. Anyway, no, I don't think I've heard of them. Anyways, um, so the lead, so the the band performed in Edinburgh, which is very close to my heart because I studied there for quite a while. Um, so their lead singer Lauren Mayberry got shit on for the outfit she wore during the performance. Really, and we all know that shitting on what women wear is like par for the course. But she uh, responded really well. So people were bitching about her performance outfits for being too revealing. And let me just say, how can you judge a performance outfit? Their whole point is for them to be a little shocking, over the top. It's not something you go to Target in, okay? They're performative. They're part of the experience. And they can be whatever the hell you want. Let's remember, Lady Gaga wore a meat dress, in a bubble dress. And that's okay. So why, like, what bar are they measuring this against? Like, I mean, maybe if you walked out, like, wearing a strip of cloth to just cover your labia and your nipples, maybe then they'd be okay to be like, hmm, that's too much. But even that is fucking okay. Because a woman can wear whatever she wants. That's true. But I, I'm just saying, I think they'd have, like, a tiny bit more ground to stand on. But I, we'd still be like, no, fuck So. You. I'm going to show you the picture of what she was wearing at this performance. Really? They complained about that? Yeah. So she's wearing like this. It's like a tank top. So she's wearing like kind of a, a midriff showing tank top. It covers her breasts kind of around her midsection. And then she's got these like poofy dynamic sleeves are kind of hanging off. Almost look like wings. Yeah. And then she's got a skirt or pants or something. It's all black. But then she's all covered in mesh. Everything is oh, covered is in mesh. Yeah, mesh. so like... Oh, yeah. So like all the parts that were exposed mesh. are mesh. And we're not saying that she was dressed modestly enough. We're just saying that no. like this shouldn't shock well, see, anyone. the thing is, I didn't even think she was wearing mesh, and I still thought it was fine. Yeah, like she's not dressed outrageously. I don't understand why this outfit is eliciting a reaction at all. are stupid. But we're not talking about people being shitty to her, because people have been shitty about what women wear since we started wearing loincloths like come on what we're going to talk about is her response so she's getting shit on and slut shamed for what she's wearing at a performance and she responded on social media um saying 
To the people saying that my gig outfits are too revealing slash I shouldn't dress like that if I don't want men to comment on it, I disagree. It's like a Gwen thing to say. That's what my mom would say. I disagree. This argument assumes women only dress for the attention of men. When I dress for shows, I want to own my gender and my femininity. I want my performance image to be inherently feminine and tough as fuck because this is how I want to pretend to be to myself and to the women and young girls who come to our gigs. I don't need to pretend to be one of the lads because I'm not one. How I dress is part of how I express myself creatively and how I want to communicate our message. It's about trying not to be ashamed of your own gender and identity, even when people tell you that you should be. About not being scared into hiding yourself because of the actions of others. People have tried to weaponize my gender against me since the start of my career as a musician. It happens now, but it also happened when I was wearing baggy flannel shirts and jeans because it's not really about what women are wearing. It never is. No. It's about claiming ownership of women's bodies and women's narratives. So I will continue dressing like a gothic Powerpuff girl with big witch energy. And I hope that you'll all do whatever you your version is of that is too. I fucked up that lesson. Okay. Everyone else will just have to deal with it. My body, my life, my choice. If I, I wasn't that. afraid of breaking my phone, I would throw it on the ground right now. That is... I feel like that just summarizes everything that women have been saying about being judged for what they're wearing. Right. She's like, no matter what I've been wearing, I get judged for it. Goth Powerpuff Girl with big witch energy. May we all aspire to be that. And I think that's worth cheersing to. Again, with our silent cheers. Cheers. But like, if I didn't love that band before... I'm like I know I might I might have to go listen to them. Oh, you'd love them. I'm sure you've heard them before. I'm sure I have. Like I said, I'll look them up and see what their most popular songs are, and maybe I've heard them before. So, and everyone knows what we're doing after this episode. Now, I'm going to no, make Kelly binge Mars. churches. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, it's been so long since we watched Veronica Mars. She's another, like, feminine icon. Like, I want to embody her, except make healthier choices. Right. (laughs) Not put myself in, like, bodily harm's way, like, every day. I really don't want to get locked in a uh, chest freezer and almost murdered by my boyfriend's dad, who murdered murdered my my best best friend. friend. Yeah. (laughs) Spoilers, if anyone hasn't seen the first season. It's been out for, like, ten years. Everyone can go fuck yourself. On the movie podcast, we review movies that have been out forever, and we're like, if you, or even new movies, it's like, okay, if you thought we were going to talk for an hour about this movie and not spoil it, fuck you. Right. <laughs> so, I, Kelly, you're I going to go first, first today. Yay. This was decided upon by whose story is more depressing? So, we were catching up with some research, and we both had two stories locked and loaded, and Kelly texts me, and she's <laughs> like... I'm like, one of my stories is depressing. depressing. (laughs) I had a depressing story and a not so depressing story. And so did Kelly. So we decided to coordinate whoever goes first today. (laughs) It's the depressing one. And then for our next episode, I'll start off with my depressing story. All right. Strap in and strap on. You might cry. Yeah. Only at the end, though. (laughs) Only at the end. See, that's my depressing story, too. It's very uplifting until the end. (laughs) Mine's maybe halfway. I guess we'll see. Um, 
So I'm covering Elizabeth Lee Miller, who was an American photographer and photojournalist. I've never heard of her. Yeah. She kind of goes along with... um, I shouldn't start saying names until I remember what their name is. You know... Uh, Not Cecilia Payne. Uh, That other... The war correspondent lady. Oh, uh, Martha. Thank you. Martha Gellhorn. Yeah. You know, I... This lady kind of goes along with that. I have such bad retention, but doing this research, like, I can talk about these stories at length. I can, too. I just don't always remember their name. Yeah. Okay. So... I'm going to call her Lee because I think that's what she preferred. So Lee was born on April 23rd, 1907 in Poughkeepsie, New York. Her parents were Theodore and Florence Miller. I just like for a second, I was like, Theodore, that kind of sounds feminine. But no, I'm just crazy. Theodora. I've just just read this. I've just read this story too many times. Her parents were Theodore and Florence Miller. She had a younger brother, Eric, and an older brother named John. Theodore always favored Lee, and he often used her as a model for his amateur photography. When she was seven years old, um, Lee was raped while staying with a family friend in Brooklyn and infected with gonorrhea. Oh! Disturbingly... I'm sorry. I'm going to pause for a second. You said this might get sad halfway through. We are three seconds in, and I am devastated. I know. (laughs) It gets better, and then it gets worse again. This is a roller coaster of emotions. (laughs) Um... Disturbingly, a year after her rape is is when her father like started photographing her, particularly yeah. <laughs> I'm like two. I'm like two two glasses in. Yeah, we've been pre gaming um, pretty hard. So he started photographing her in the nude, and he did so well into her twenties. You know, which is just super fucking creepy. You know, when you said her father favored her and photographed her, immediately I'm like, okay, but was it creepy? And I didn't say anything because I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. No, it was. Theodore Why is was. it always when an adult man Theodore was a little creepy is photographing someone like it's inappropriate? Like, why does it always have to be that way? Right. It's almost cliche. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad because that's what I thought. I was like, eh. so she traveled to Europe in 1925, which would have made her 18. Yeah, 18 at the time. She stayed in Paris and studied art. Lee's time in Europe was brief, and she got called back to New York by her father. Though upon her return, she did enroll in the Art Students League of New York in New York City to continue her education. Her education. Um, so at that time she was 19, so she was only in Europe for like a year or less. So at, when she was an art student, Lee was nearly killed when she stepped into oncoming traffic. However, she was saved by none other than Condé Nast, who is the founder of Vogue, in case you didn't know. Holy shit. I didn't know that. (laughs) Holy Um, shit. Recognizing her striking beauty, Nast launched her as a Vogue cover girl in 1927, and she quickly became one of New York's top models. What in- a great origin story. Right. I'm sorry I interrupted you there, but like, how, what a great discovery story. Like, some people are discovered in mall food courts, but she got saved by the head of Vogue, and he was like, you're looking pretty good. You want to be a model? Right. Okay. So, in this cover girl photo, um, she was illustrated in a blue hat and pearls. That's cool. Only um, a blue hat and pearls? I don't know. I didn't look it up. That's <laughs> just a, it's a she appeared not. illustrated in a blue hat and pearls in a drawing by George La Pape. I suppose back then it was more drawings than Yeah. Photography was in its infancy. 
Um, that's why no one was smiling. Right. They were so impatient waiting. I saw this thing the other day. This is way off topic. But I saw this thing the other day that was, um, it was like old time um, photo bombing your uh, wife's selfie required you to stand there for three hours really <laughs> <laughs> because it was like this girl like being all pretty in this chair and her husband like standing behind her because a lot of times they they would they would put like a stick in your back to ensure you stood straight because it would yeah. take hours or if you were dead yep <laughs> but yeah so he's like he looks really uncomfortable but yeah it kind of looks like he just like walked into the picture and stood there you know some people really don't funny. like having their photo taken right they have they have resting i hate this face <laughs> right okay so Lee's look was exactly what Vogue's editor-in-chief at the time, Edna Woolman Chase, was looking for, and they used her to represent the emerging idea of the modern girl. Ooh. For the next two years, she was one of the most sought-after models in New York. Photographed by leading fashion photographers, including Edward Steichen, I'm probably butchering these names, Arnold Genth, Nicholas Murray, and George Hoeningen-Huen. You tackled that with confidence, though. A photograph of, of Lee by Steichen was used to advertise Kotek menstrual pads without her consent, and that effectively ended her career as a fashion model. First of all, consent is always important. Second of all, advertising menstrual pads should not be but that I mean, back then, devastating. Yeah. Um, however, she was hired at, uh, by a fashion designer in 19, like shortly after 1929 to make drawings of fashion details in Renaissance paintings. But in time, she grew tired of this and found photography more efficient. Well, yeah, because you don't have to stand there while someone draws you and you're doing times tables in your head like I do when right? I model. That's funny. <laughs> um, so later in 1929, uh, Lee traveled to Paris again with the intention of apprenticing herself to the surrealist artist and photographer Man Ray. Ooh. I don't know. I know who he is. But yeah, so he was he was kind of one of the pioneers of photography of the of that day anyways. So although Man Ray at first insisted that he did not take students, Lee soon became his model and collaborator, announcing to him, I'm your new student. So here I am. Here's the deal. Start adjusting to it. Right. <laughs> Um, this she is your also, life. Yeah, right. She also later became his lover and his muse as well. Kind of reminds me of, uh, is it Carolyn? No. Who Carol- was? Carolyn Hersh- Herschel was no, the- No, uh, I always screw her. I always get her name mixed up with Carolyn. It was the one who was um, Rodin's. Yeah, I know. I know who you're thinking of and I can't think of her name. Motherfucker. Anyway. I'm so bad I, at this. I know. But yes, kind of. She, at the time, she befriended many of Paris's notable artists, including Picasso and Mac, Max Ernst. She even appeared in Cocteau's film Le, Le Sang d'un Poète in 1929. She lived a very daringly bohemian existence. Love it. While in Paris, she began her own photographic studio, often taking over Ray's Man Ray's fashion assignments to enable him to concentrate on his paintings. So closely did they collaborate that photographs taken by Lee during this time period are often credited to Ray. Together with Ray, she discovered the photographic technique of solarization through an accident in which um, they discovered an accident when a mouse ran over Lee's foot, causing her to switch on the light in mid-development. So... You know, generally yeah. when you're developing photos, you don't want any light. You're in a dark room with maybe exactly. a re- with the red light. Um, this made a distinctive visual signature. By the way, the woman we were trying to think of 
Camille Claudel. Okay. Like, this is reminding me so much of that story. Oh, I yeah. had to look it up. No, it, 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 very soon it'll deviate veer into a very different story. So th- this, this was a very visually distinctive technique, um, which fits the surrealist principle of unconscious accident being integral art. It evokes the style's appeal to the irrational or paradoxical in combining polar opposites of positive and negative. Jean Cocteau um, was so mesmerized by Lee's beauty that he coated her in butter and transformed her into a plaster cast of a classic <laughs> for a classical statue. I love that reaction to beauty. God, you are just gorgeous. Can I just cover you in butter? Yeah, right. Can, like, I suppose at the time they didn't have like Vaseline and stuff to like protect you from being true. But still, that's funny. But just this, like, I just really want to see you coated in butter. And then I'll make a plaster cast. But, like, butter must be involved. It's a very Mm -hmm. Minnesotan thing. (laughs) Like, we got the state fair going on. And the it's like, what, Miss Minnesota or Miss Dairy Queen or something. She always gets her bust carved out of butter. It's very impressive. Like... It's the, like a 10-pound block of butter. The it's stereotypes you that. think of Minnesota are all probably true in some respect. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, toward the end of their relationship, um, they had a dispute regarding an attribution of their co-produced work, and Ray is said to have slashed an image of Miller's neck with a razor. So she left him and went back home. Oh, shit. That's sure, aggressive. Right. She returned to New York City in 1932 and established a portrait and commercial studio um, with her brother, Eric. So her younger oh, brother. One he, of the rare instances right? where the siblings are actually important. come back. Yeah, <laughs> that this is like literally it. <laughs> but he was also he was a fashion photographer in his own right, working for Tony Van Horn at the time. Aww. And so she he decided to work as her darkroom assistant. Um, she rented two apartments in a building one block from the Radio City, City Music Hall. One of the apartments became her home, while the other became the Lee Miller Studio. Clients of the Lee Miller Studio included BBDO, Henry Sell, Elizabeth Arden, Helena Rubinstein, Saks Fifth Avenue, I. Magnin and Co., and J. Thorpe. I know some of those names. During 1932, Miller or Lee was included in the Modern European Photography Exhibit at the Julian Levi Gallery in New York and in Brooklyn, Brooklyn's Museum International Photographers. Whew. It's a mouthful. Right? In response to the exhibition, Catherine Grant Stern wrote a review in Parnassus in March 1932, noting that Lee, quote, had retained the more had retained more of her American character in the Paris Melu, the very beautiful bird cages at Brooklyn, the study of the pink-nailed hand embedded in curly blonde hair, which is included in both the Brooklyn and the Julian Levy show, and the brilliant print of a white statue against a black drop, Illumin, I'm not kidding, I-L-L-U-M-I-N-E. So it's not like illuminate. It's like illumin. Okay. like The fact rather than distort it. So basically she's saying... You know, she kept her Americanness, even though she lived in Paris. She brought a unique, otherworldly perspective to the Parisian art scene. Well, no, because this is when she was back in oh. the United States. Basically, she's saying she went to Paris, and instead of getting lost in everything that in Paris, Paris is, she kept her like American identity. She doubled down, basically. What, um, Amer- what an American thing to do. You travel right. abroad and you're like, Fuck I'm this. super American now. Right. In 1933, Julien Levy gave uh, Lee the only solo exhibit of her life. Among her portrait clients were surrealist artist, artist 
Joseph Cornell, actress Lillian Harvey and Gertrude Lawrence, and the African-American cast of Virgil Thomas, Gertrude Stein, opera Four Saints and Three Acts. Holy fuck. Um, so yeah, she, she did get one solo exhibit, so that's good. Um, in 1934, Lee abandoned her studio to marry an Egyptian businessman and engineer named Aziz Aloui Bey who had come to New York to buy equipment for the Egyptian National Railways. Although she did not work as a professional photographer during their, their time together, the photographs she took while living in Egypt with Eloy included a uh, portrait of space and are rego- regarded as some of her most striking surrealist images. So she was still... T- f- she, she was, was still, still taking, taking pictures, pictures, but not professionally. professionally. Jinx. I love you. I love you, too. <laughs> By 1937, Lee had grown bored of her life in Cairo and returned to Paris, where she met the (laughs) British surrealist painter and curator Roland Penrose. Although not yet divorced, she was living with Penrose when the war broke out. Can I just say, what a, like, incredibly glamorous thing to say, bored of her life in Cairo. That's so funny. (laughs) Like, I love her, but fuck you. Right. (laughs) It's funny. Bored of her life in Rural Minnesota. Nah, we don't live in rural Minnesota, but compared to Cairo, this is rural everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So although not yet divorced, she was living with Penrose when war broke out. Ignoring pleas from friends and family to return to the U.S., Lee embarked on a new career in photojournalism as the official war photographer for Vogue documenting the Blitz as it happened. I've never thought of Vogue as having a war journalist. I know. Um, she was accredited to the U.S. Army as one of a uh, few women war correspondents. According to historical records, they can only conf- confirm 100% five photojournalists, like women war photojournalists. Okay. I don't know if they counted like regular journalists or if it was just photojournalists. Well, and think to uh, Martha Gellhorn, because yeah. this is kind of coming into her territory now. <laughs> she snuck on a battleship right, exactly. to witness D-Day. I'm sure she was not included and in any two, statistics. The, the two women must have met up, and you'll see why I say that. <gasps> Please tell me they like had a sleepover no, in that not, bathroom. They're not like... What bathroom? Remember Martha locked herself in a bathroom on the ship to avoid being detected? (laughs) But like, I feel like they would have ran into each other in their time together. You'll see why. They just had a meaningful look. They're like, I recognize your power and I respect it. Um, So she was a war correspondent for the Condé Nast publications starting in December 1942. So now we all know what war I'm talking about. World War II, in case you still don't know. Um, She teamed up with the American photographer David E. Sherman, a life correspondent on many assignments. She traveled to France less than a month after D-Day and recorded the first use of napalm at the Siege of St. Malo. Holy fuck. Yep. She also um, recorded the liberation of Paris, the Battle of Alsace, and the horror of the Nazi concentration camps at Butchwald and Dachau. Oh, God. Yep. And she's she's photographing all of yep. this. And this is... Because remember... Um, Gellhorn, Martha Gellhorn, was at Dachau when it was liberated. That's right. So it says, on April 29th, 1945, Lee walked through the gates of Dachau as it was liberated by the American forces. Deeply shocked, she nevertheless photographed the evidence of the Nazis' extermination of the Jews and other enemies of the Third Reich. The pictures are stark and sickening and have lost none of their emotional impact over the years. Mark Hawath, sorry, 
Haworth Booth, curator of the Art of Lee Miller, has said her her photograph shocked people out of their comfort zone and that she had a chip of ice in her heart. She got very close to things. Um, Margaret Bourke White, who I'm going to be covering later, actually, was far away from the fighting, but Lee was close. That's what makes this difference. Lee was prepared to shock. You know what? Anyone viewing those pictures should be shocked out of their comfort zone. If you look at that and you just shrug, right. there's something wrong with yeah. you. Get help. So, Can you imagine witnessing that firsthand, though? Because those pictures are hard enough to look at, let alone to be in the the personal presence oh, of. Yeah. I mean, th- that leads to some of the sadness later. Oh, God. Um, so after liberating Dasha, she continued with the troops um, into... I didn't write down the city. <laughs> but she continued um, with the troops on to um, Hitler's secret apartments. And there's a very famous photograph of her taken by Sherman of Lee in Hitler's bathtub with the shower hose looped in the center behind her head, almost recollecting a noose. So, yeah. Oh, like, my her God. Her boots are on the floor covered in the dust of Dachau. Like... Yeah, it's just, and, and she then, immediately and moves ended on up, to Hitler's apartment, and that ended up being the same day Hitler and his girlfriend, wife, oh my god, killed themselves in their bunker. Ava Braun, yeah, but like basically, a lot of people view this as you know, basically Lee being like, "Fuck you, Hitler!" Like, you know, I was there when we liberated the people you're trying to, you know kill yeah and now you know i'm washing my ass in your bathtub well when you think about it a bathroom is a very private place for people it's kind of where a lot of our animalistic behaviors like being naked washing defecating exactly it's happen and it's like i am here and fuck you um so being one of the first to arrive at hitler's secret apartments lee admits that i had his address in my pocket for years after taking the bathtub picture um, Miller continued to bathe in Hitler's tub and slept in his bed. During this Oh my god. Time, I know, it's creepy. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> During this time, Lee photographed dying children in a Vienna hospital, peasant life in post-war Hungary, corpses of Nazi officers and their families, and finally the execution of Prime Minister Laszlo Bordosi. Jesus. So she she's there documenting some of the most pivotal moment in, moments of World War II and kind of when it was ending yeah so she i mean she was there yeah like kind of during when everything was falling apart for the the third that had to be real hard though holy shit i mean i mean we're so sheltered in our lives oh yeah and can you imagine imagine. witnessing that kind of brutality and that horror and just there's no other situation where you're gonna view that no just god right moving on to post-war please (laughs) After returning to Britain from Central Europe, Lee started to suffer from severe episodes of clinical depression and probably what li- what would later become known as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. I wonder what could have caused that. Right. If only we knew. She began to drink heavily and became uncertain about her future. In 1946, she traveled with Penrose, the guy she was dating before the war, okay. to the United States where she visited Man Ray in California. She later... D- she also discovered around that time that she was peg- pregnant by Penrose with her only son. She was 40. Oh. She, she divorced Bay, who she was still married to, that Egyptian guy. I was going to say, was she still married to yep. him at this point? And on May 3rd, 1947, she married Penrose. Their son, 
Anthony Penrose was born in September 1947. Yay. I want to be happy, but I'm worried that something bad happens. <laughs> Don't make that. <laughs> Don't do that to me. And ni- so um, two years later, 1949, the couple bought Farley Farmhouse in Chittingly, East Sussex. During the 1950s and 1960s, Farley Farm became sort of an artistic mecca for visiting artists such as Picasso, Man Ray, Henry Moore, Eileen Egger, Jean de Buffet, or Buffet, Dorothy Tanning, and Max Ernst. While Miller continued to do the occasional f- photo shoot for Vogue, she soon discarded the darkroom for the kitchen, becoming a gourmet cook. According to her housekeeper, Patsy, that's like such a like working class name i was gonna say like did they name her patsy like (laughs) her name was really elizabeth reginald the third and they're like we're gonna call you patsy (laughs) so according to her housekeeper patsy she specialized in quote historical food end quote (laughs) like roast suckling pig as well as fare such as marshmallows in a cola sauce which she liked to make especially to annoy english critic sarah Connolly, who told her that americans could not cook Wow. I feel like that's something I would do. Yeah, just, oh, you said I can't? Fuck you. Eat my food. She also provided photographs for biographies that her husband wrote on Picasso and Antoni Tapis. However, images from the war, especially the concentration camps, continued to haunt Lee, and she started on what her son would later later describe as a downward spiral. Mm. Her depression may have been accelerated by her husband's long affair with trapeze artist Diane Durez. So I didn't put this in here because for some reason when I was going through a second time, I couldn't refine the section. But there was a section in one of the articles I read that actually talked about how they're pretty sure Miller or Lee and her husband had a very open relationship because there's a lot of things that point to uh, Lee being a lover of the guy she was traveling around Germany with during the war. Sherman or whatever. Uh, yeah, something like that. Doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> this isn't about um, him. There, there was a part about how supposedly um, her husband's ex-wife like came to live with them, and so like they were like a trio for a little while. Like, so there, there's a lot of stuff I found in one article in particular that may, may suggested that they may have actually had like an open relationship. And here's the thing: if everyone's on board and it's all consensual and respectful, right. there's nothing wrong. And with that's that. how that one article made it seem, but like. None of the other articles mentioned it, but none of the other articles mentioned the trapeze artist either. So okay. it's unknown. So flexible. They loved each other, though. Can you imagine how flexible a trapeze artist must be in bed? Oh, God. No. Like, he, I, th- I think I'd be in bed with a trapeze artist and be like, like, what are you doing? Do you want to try the, you know, the backwards elephant from Cairo? What the fuck they, is as that? Lo- as long as I don't have to do the bending, sure. You can dislocate your elbows, right? What? What? you? That's day one stuff. No, it's not. <laughs> Um, so later in life, Miller was investigated by the British Security Service MI5 during the 1940s and 50s on suspicion of being a Soviet spy. She was cleared of all charges. Jeez, that's stressful. Right. That's something life never prepares you for. Yeah. In October 1969, Miller was asked in an interview with the New York Times what it, what drew her to photography. Her response was that it was, quote, a matter of getting out on a damn limb and sawing it off behind you, end quote. I love that. 
And that's kind of what she, because she threw herself in not really aware or maybe caring about the emotional consequences of witnessing what she did. And it sounds like that's going to catch up with her and I'm really sad and I just kind of want this to be over. (laughs) And she lived happily ever after and died at 90. (laughs) Um, So Anton had a difference. Anton, their child, Lee's child, had a difficult and painful relationship with his mother. Quote, it's not easy having a relationship with an alcoholic parent, he says. It was challenging, unusual, and threatening. She was normally a very generous, sensitive, and kind person, but when drunk, she would be verbally abusive and cutting. Yes. The things she'd say would be really astonishing. She never hit me, but she didn't need to. She could do all the damage with words. End quote. And that is absolutely accurate you know a a person can be loving they can be the best person in the world but when they're drunk it gets real dark real fast and it's hard to reconcile those two people living within one right um packed off to boarding school in his teens antony grew more hostile towards his mother his father roland was kind but remote he says he was the son of victorian parents but he was a good man strong and morally very correct that's how he described his father like that's so weird i think i think he recognized the sternness but he's like well at least you're not an alcoholic who's emotionally devastating me um this is kind of side noting from my notes um but it turned out that like him and his father didn't know that she was raped as a child or anything about her history like even like her photography it's a thing right. that comes up later but the rate like so he didn't know that and like so they found out a lot of stuff after she died that was like oh this makes so much sense yeah well, we'll get to that well we were talking about with carrie davies like how, how do you tell your child that something that yeah. horrible and, happened and in this to case, you Lee didn't yeah and she just that's her choice, but I'm sure it would have uh, helped them kind of understand what was going on yeah. and why a lot better. So Ant- Anton just viewed her as, you know, an alcoholic housewife. Yeah. Um. So her drinking took a toll on its its looks and An- sorry, not Anton, Antony. Um. Antony thinks that that devastated her further. The loss of her beauty. Um, well, that's what everyone gravitated towards her right. because of. Someone saved her life and like, you're really pretty. You should be a model. Someone's like, you're really pretty. I want to cover you in butter. Yeah, right. Exactly. Her to lose father. That. Yeah. Her rapist, I'm sure, made comments about her looks. Like, yeah. it's been such a central part of why people seem to like her. And you can't help but internalize that, especially right. when it happens so young. Yeah, but it's... Her son describes it as um, like a willful self-destruction mm. because she's drinking to like deal with all these feelings. But it, then it's, you know, like rooting her, you know, it's kind of that cycle of willful self-destruction. Yeah. Um, as soon as he was able, Antony put as much distance between himself and Lee as possible, traveling the world in a Land Rover and marrying in New Zealand. I know I'm talking a lot about her son, but it kind of comes full circle it gives a lot of insight into how she's experiencing this downward right? spiral and that's the thing there there wasn't a lot about her after her war correspondence except stuff that was written by her son right well it's not like she was journaling no. about like well i'm in you know this deep depression right. when well, she wasn't in the spotlight anymore behaviors. so nobody gave a shit yeah um in later years um he lee recovered to some extent he says that she managed to claw her way out of 
alcoholism, and depression and reinvented herself as a gourmet surrealist cook. She would serve her guests blue spaghetti, green chicken, and pink cauliflower breasts, complete with nipples and pink sauce. Oh my god. I kind of love that. Right? (laughs) Thanks in part to Antony's wife, Susanna, mother and son were eventually reconciled, and Lee was able to hold her first grandchild, Amy, in her arms a few weeks before dying from cancer. Oh no! Cancer! Lee died from cancer at Farley Farmhouse in 1977, age 70. She was cremated and her ashes were spread through her herb garden at the farm. You know, when you think nowadays most people are retiring at like 65, 70 is not old. No. Like, that sucks. Her husband, who is still alive, Roland, um, he died later in 1984, was absolutely distraught. Their son, Anthony, says she must have been one of the most incredibly difficult women a man could live with. But Roland stuck by her. Despite everything, they did love each other. Oh, yeah. no, That's sweet. Shortly after Lee's death, Susanna. So that's Anthony's wife. Okay. Discovered the stash of negatives, prints and articles in the attic of Farley Farm, the Penrose's home um, where Anthony actually still lives. A quote from Anthony says, until then, I'd seen her as a booze-soaked, hysterical woman. I had to reevaluate my entire attitude of her. So they found like over 600 prints and all of this stuff. That kind of told the whole story. Because yep. at, at the time she died, Lee's work as an artist was nearly forgotten, though Man Ray's photographs of her continued to be well known. Since the discovery of her photos, Anthony has worked tirelessly to restore her reputation. Much of her work is now archived online, and Anthony has written biographies on both of his parents. Exhibits, exhibitions of Lee's photos are shown around the world, and he conducts tours around the family home where he still lives. Oh, Anthony. Asked, has he forgiven Lee for her abuse of him when he was a child? He says, oh, God, yes. I just really regret we were so hostile, so embattled for so long. He believes she was afraid to show her her love for him because of past traumas. Quote, when she was young, there were a series of boys she fell in love with who died. I think she I think she thought I'm not going to let myself love this baby because if I do, something dreadful will happen to him. Oh, God. He now spends his life preserving his mother's memory that he never really knew as a child. You know, when you have a family member who you don't get along with or who's abusive because that's what this was you know you can examine all the mitigating factors but she was not good to her son no but to be able to recognize your parent as a flawed human being who has ages of baggage that's weighing down on them right that is a very hard lesson to learn and i'm glad he was able to recognize her as oh, a yeah. fully fleshed out human being right. and some some people one of the articles i read that like you know obviously went off a lot of his work because that's really all that there's left of the after stuff you know said that you know in a way he's probably still trying to get close to her because he never had that closeness right right so her legacy um, as I said, Anthony still owns the house that they that her his parents Farley Farm, and he offers um, tours that include the work of both of his parents, as well as the private collections they owned. Uh, her pictures have all been compiled into the Lee Miller Archive, which is available online. In 1985, her son published the first biography of Lee, entitled "The Lives of Lee Miller." Since then, quite a number of books have been. 
um, published, mostly accompanying her exhibitions of her photog- of her photographs. Anton and David Sherman, who's the guy who traveled throughout Europe with him, Sherman. with her, Sherman, collaborated on a book called Lee, Lee Miller's War, Photography and Correspondent with the Allies in Europe, 1944 to 1945. That was written in 1992. 2005, Miller's life story was turned into a musical. <laughs> I'm sorry. That just... <laughs> Um, I'm guessing they went from the modeling phase to the photography and then ended it. They probably cut out the beginning and the end. You know, there's an American Psycho musical. There's a, I think it's a Ted Bundy musical. Right, I just, it just, Anything can be a musical, but I'm hearing this story and the first thing that pops into my head is not jazz hands. (laughs) Right. um, The musical was called Six Pictures of Lee Miller with music and lyrics by British composer Jason Carr. I want to find that on Spotify now. (laughs) Also in 2005, Carolyn Burke's substantial biography, Lee Miller, A Life, was published. Um, She had an interactive CD and DVD of her photography of St. Malo, which is the napalm. Okay. One released. And I'm like, that would be kind of cool. Jeez. I don't know if I want to get that close. Um, Yeah, right? I don't know if I want to have that experience. Um, In 2015, uh, her photographs made it into the Scottish National Portrait um, Gallery. And there was an exhibit called Lee Miller and Picasso, which focused on their relationship. Um, which is kind of cool. Can you imagine serving Picasso coffee when he comes and visits? Like, it's not the biggest fucking deal in Um, the world. And then there have been two books written about her. One actually just came out this year that that have to do with um, Lee and then Man Ray and their relationship and their stuff they're they're situation they're both fiction but it's like historical fiction yeah so it's based on the real events they decide to fill in the blanks how they see fit but there's a lot of historically verifiable structure to support it so yeah the first one is about like lee's affair with ray although it wasn't an affair because i don't think she was married yet i think that was before she married the egyptian anyways but like lee's affair with man ray in the 1930s and then the other one is about um lee's life and work and her relationship with man ray so the the second one seems more focused on lee directly you know what i think is interesting a lot of the women that we've covered if they have a book written about them it's been written in like the last five years i know a lot of these women are coming back it's like and that makes me happy to see that these women are being recognized and their lives are really being explored right it's nice Although it should have happened sooner, but well, we can't change the past, but we can affect the present. So that was my depressing ending, Lee Miller story. You know that was really fascinating, though, because a lot of the women we cover, I I feel like in a way we put them up on pedestals, even if they have maybe inappropriate behavior, because it's like right, like uh um Julie de Abjune or. Yeah. You know, burning down a convent to save her girlfriend or that whatever. Was bad, but funny at the same it's, time. It's so outrageous. And I love it. And I love that story. But to recognize, her, you know, yeah, Lee like she as some a flawed character. Yeah. And that's kind of why I love it is that's like, no, she did. She did these terrible things. Like she was not a good mother, you know, but. Then yeah, I like I like that the end is like her son re- recognizing that and recognizing yeah that she was a flawed human being and some of the thing some of the flaws I thought she had were there for a reason. Yeah, because you don't have to forgive someone's behavior to recognize why it happens. Exactly. Like 
tangent but relatable my paternal grandmother i uh as i got older and her husband started getting sick and she she did not behave appropriately and it put a huge strain on my family and i really resented her for it and it was just very easy to say yeah i fucking hate her i don't like her and my you know her husband passed away and then she passed away and i agreed to speak at her funeral um for my father because you know that was his mother and i knew it was important to him yeah but it's crazy after someone dies how all this stuff just starts coming out and i started to she had a really hard life she lost one of her sons when he was like 16 or 17 to cancer like There were a lot of reasons for her to be the way she was and to recognize her as just as flawed of a human being as I am. And to accept that is a really comforting thing. And I really hope he's found comfort in just accepting his mother as a flawed human being who was doing her best and had gone through a lot of shit. And there was a reason she was the way she was. Right. And I'm not saying if a family member is toxic, you have to like them or forgive them. That's totally up to you. But, but just know that there might be more that that you don't know about. Right, exactly. It's so your it's your turn, darling. I have the impossible job of bringing us up from that. Yep. <laughs> and don't worry, I get that next episode. I'm a. Uh, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get through the beginning of this, and immediately you're gonna be like, "How is this a happy story?" But bear with me. I trust okay? you. So I am covering Sarah Biffin. So we've talked about how difficult it is for women throughout history to pursue their passions simply because they're women. That just seems to be this inherent barrier and it's bullshit. So Sarah Biffin was no exception, but she had an additional hurdle. Sarah was born on October 25th, 1784, into a poor farming family in East Quantic's Head, Somerset. Where's that? Englandish. Okay. I don't think it was good enough. Li- I don't think it was in England. Everyone's gonna get really mad at me because it's like Wales is not the same as England. It was in part of Britain. Great part Britain. Of Britain. It was part of Great Britain. She was across the pond. There you go. Uh, so she was born with no arms and oh. vestigial oh. legs. So basically. She was missing her arms from above the elbow and her legs from like above the knee. So she, you know, had her biceps and thighs. Remember, this is 1784. Thanks for that. (laughs) This is a bad time to be born without arms and legs. Uh, So this was due to a condition known as phocomelia, which affects bone and limb development in utero. Hmm. Fun fact, phocomelia can be caused by thalidomide, a drug that was marketed to pregnant women in the 1950s to alleviate morning sickness. What the fuck? (laughs) I mean, they used to put like lead on everything because it was pretty and glowed green. Oh, I'm sorry. You're in pain? Do cocaine. I'm sorry. You're hearing voices? They still do that. Cocaine. They still do that. They actually still use cocaine in some surgical procedures. Stop. I just found that out the other day. What surgical procedures? Can um, I get in on that? (laughs) If you have to have like a nose surgery. I know someone that had to have like nose surgery. And because cocaine is really good at like stopping you bleeding that they use. That's what they used. Like it's very small amounts. Right. You're not going to like get it. That's crazy. I know. I just found that out the other day and I was like, 
we still use cocaine in medicine. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's even crazier than it having been in Coca-Cola. Right. Okay. We can move on now. Sorry. Okay. This so, is what happens when we drink too much before we podcast. You know what? Let us know. Like, are you into which, this? Which way do you prefer? This is basically drunk history right now. It's amazing. So in there our, had in pro- our ambiance room because the light, the main light in our studio was check flashing. out check out our Instagram stories. I turned on the light and it was seizure worthy. Like disco, like, disco party up in here. I was like Kelly, we're gonna record in a rave and like you're gonna be telling your story. I'm just gonna low key. Instead, I just turned off the main light and turned on the side lights, and it's it's very ambiance. It's very romantic. Yeah, it is. It's like low light setting. Okay, so there had probably never been a child like her born in the village, at least not one that survived infancy. Oh, probably not. One of the... So, of the thousands of cases that resulted from the uh, epidemic in the 50s from using that drug, only about 50% survived. Wow. And that was hundreds of years later. Right. So, Sarah's condition was so unusual, some of the villagers actually feared her. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. I would like go around and just look at people and go, boo. Like, I would take advantage of that in the worst way possible. Once you figured out how to get around. And then they burned her for being a witch. The end! Yeah, right. (laughs) She turned me into a newt. (laughs) She has a witch nose. That's a carrot. They tied it to my My face. Oh, I just watched that movie I and that I forgot movie. how good it is. Everyone should go watch Monty Python and the, and the Quest for the Holy Grail. It's on Netflix. It's great. Okay, so without the aid of doctors, support, or the internet, her parents weren't sure how to care for Sarah and treated her as a fragile, sickly child. I don't blame them. No, because they're probably like, the fuck? Yeah. However... As children are wont to do, Sarah pushed her boundaries and came up with creative ways to do everyday activities like sewing with her mouth. I can barely do that with my hands. Yeah, I'm not good at sewing with my hands. She literally learned to thread a needle, tie That's a knot. That's impressive. Because how could you like thread a needle with your mouth? I can't do I that I can't with thread a needle hands. with hands. And it's. Have you ever seen that guy? He doesn't have arms, but he plays piano with her toes. She didn't even have toes to work with here. Yeah. I I want a video of this because I kind of almost don't believe it. I don't think that exists. <laughs> I can barely do that with my hands. Like, That's I'm very so impressive. useless. Although maybe their needles were different back then. They had massive eyes. Yeah, okay. That's why they always talked about pushing camels through needles. Right? <laughs> So basically, she uh, could thread a needle, tie a knot, use scissors, and made her own dresses. That's badass. That is amazing. Then she taught herself how to read and write by putting a pen in her mouth, which that I believe. Yeah, that, that, like, that I could definitely That see. makes sense. She would carry pens around using loops she sewed into the shoulders of her dresses. So she had little straps and she would like yeah. stick her pen into her shoulder. When she was 12. Shoulder shoulder loop, not into her shoulder. (laughs) She was fucking metal. (laughs) I don't have arms and legs. What the fuck do I care? (laughs) So when she was 12 or 14, a traveling showman named Edmund Dukes passed through through town and saw Sarah. Fascinated or more likely seeing the financial potential in her, Emmanuel offered Sarah room and board and a salary in order to become an attraction in his traveling sideshow. Now, let's remember, Sarah is an adolescent girl being raised by parents who don't know how to care for her and they're poor as shit. 
It's hard to know how much say she had in the decision, but either way, Sarah joined Emmanuel's show billed as the astonishing curiosity and more directly, the limbless wonder. People, Sounds accurate. People paid upwards of two shillings to watch Sarah sew, write, and use scissors. I mean, at least they weren't making her do like weird and gross stuff. They're like, nah, just do what you do. It was just, here's the thing. I really want to like see how this could happen. Not because I don't think that people born without limbs are incapable. I just but think I, it would be super impressive. I'm just fascinated by the mechanics of right. it all. So this next part is kind of fuzzy because history is fuzzy, kind of made up. Some records say that Sarah already knew how to paint, while others say Emmanuel, who did have a bit of an art background, taught her to paint by putting a paintbrush in her mouth. Either way, Sarah began drawing landscapes, painting miniature portraits on ivory, and she would keep her her pens and paintbrushes in the loop she sewed onto her shoulders of her dress. Her art would sell for three to ten guineas each, which is a little over $300. So three guineas is about $300, according to one website where I was actually able to figure out what the fuck a guinea is. (laughs) And I'm like, I've heard of shillings. Well, here's the thing. Never heard of a guinea. Not only do I have to figure out how much a guinea is in modern day money. Oh, so it's $300 modern money? American money, too. Because this isn't just guineas to pounds, then to dollars. So... If I'm totally wrong. If anyone knows what a guinea is. Yeah. Actually what a guinea is. They just traded guinea pigs and the guinea pig with the bitchinous mohawk was worth more. Okay. Because they have mohawks all over their bodies and they're so cute and scrappy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Just take my word for it. No, they they don't because they're they're (laughs) rodents. I just babysat some of them. They don't smell great. (laughs) So... Emmanuel, part of a long, proud tradition of predatory talent managers, took most of the profits while Sarah earned a meager salary of five pounds a year, which is only 70 cents on the dollar of what male limbless artists made. I was going to say, please laugh, because I was so proud of myself (laughs) for thinking of that joke. Modern day commentary. Word of Sarah and her work began to get around and she became a well-known attraction around fairs and festivals. Emmanuel would bet that if Sarah failed to write, paint, sew, or use scissors with her mouth, he'd pay 1,000 guineas. And if three guineas is maybe kind of probably 300 bucks, that's just a... That's like a lot of money. That's That's any kind of amount in modern day money. Make it up. You're probably closer than I could be. (laughs) Let's not math and wine. Don't don't make don't me math. math. Line. <laughs> Fuck math. In 1808, George Douglas, the Earl of Morton, attended the St. Bartholomew's Fair. He wanted to see if Sarah was really as good as they said. She painted his portrait and proceeded to blow his mind. And load. <laughs> what? Nothing. Did you say and load? Nope. <laughs> I fucking love you. You're so sassy. He proceeded to tell all of his influential rich friends whose minds were also blown. The Earl sponsored Sarah so she could receive art lessons from William Craig, a painter with the Royal Academy of Arts. So that means nothing to us now, but just know it was a big fucking deal. She began to receive more prestigious patrons and the Earl encouraged her to strike out on her own. She was anxious to leave Emmanuel Duke. I mean, he had been managing her for 16 years at this point, 
but it was time for Sarah to level up in life and she peaced out. I get that, though. This has been her livelihood since she was an adolescent. Right. Like, I'd be scared, too. Oh, yeah. She doesn't know anything else other than a poor village. Well, and it's kind of like, even if she's not happy with him, she may know he's taken all the money for her hard work, but she's able to get by. I don't know if you guys can hear it, but Kelly's pugs are barking because they're also super pissed about this. Or my husband's home. One of the two. So Sarah set up shop in Bond Street, where she began painting a series of impressive clients, including Queen Victoria, Prince Albert, who's most famously known for the penis piercing, George's three and four, and many others. She also served as an official artist in the King of Holland's court, and she she also painted Ada Lovelace, another herstory hero. We haven't covered her. I personally haven't tackled her because one, it's all about math and I feel really intimidated covering those topics because I just repeat what someone has written with no context of what it means. But two, as Emily just said a few moments ago, fuck math. Fuck math. If you can do math, I love you and appreciate you. I want nothing to or, do or with it. Or if you're like a really good math person, you should research Ada Lovelace and you can be a guest on our show. Please do. But here's the other thing. When it comes to women in STEM, she's kind of become the poster child she in really recent has. years. Because if you're listening to this on a computer right now or a smartphone, and I know you fucking are, thank Ada Lovelace. Pour some out for Ada. Anyway, Sarah became a huge deal, not just because her of her unique medical condition, but because her art was incredible. Like I've got, I'll show you some pictures, but her art is on the blog. It's beautiful. It's highly detailed, but it's delicate. It's incredible. Uh, Charles Dickens mentioned her in uh, books and she received an award for her work from the Society of Arts. And I didn't put this in my notes. And I figured if I remembered, it'd be worth mentioning. But Charles Dickens at one point was writing about uh, pottery pieces coming out of a kiln, misshapen and broken, and was like, not unlike Sarah Biffin. I'm like, oh, Charles, come on. (laughs) I don't like that reference. (laughs) So Sarah met and married William Wright, a banker. However, the marriage didn't even last a year. And he left her with an alimony of four pounds a year. I didn't bother translating it. I kind of don't care. (laughs) It's, yeah. Then things got worse financially when the Earl of Morton died in 1827. Without a noble sponsoring her, Sarah began receiving fewer and fewer commissions and her finances began to dry up. Where's the happy story, Emily? It, it gets okay. It gets okay. This isn't like. If you lied to. This isn't unicorns farting rainbows but it's not as bad as suffering mental illness and diving into alcoholism to cope with your trauma bad that's true (laughs) don't don't at me kelly (laughs) so while queen victoria in acknowledgement of her artistic skill awarded sarah a civil list pension she still had to go back to painting at festivals to make ends meet. And I feel like we hear the story with a lot of artists. You know, they they get up there, they peak, and then things kind of wane for right. one reason or another. Usually like a sponsor dies or they get really old or, you know. Yeah. Or their more famous boyfriend starts acting like a dick. I'm looking at you, Rodin. Anyway. the he, life- Keep protesting his shows, ladies. <laughs> yeah, please. 
So though life was undoubtedly difficult for Sarah, she always kept this positive outward demeanor. Dedicated patrons helped finance Sarah in her final years, and it's through these financial documents that we get more insight into her attitudes in life. She insisted that Emmanuel and her husband had treated her well, though this is doubtful. Let's all be honest. Emmanuel was probably a dick, and it sounds like her husband was also probably a dick. She seemed determined to maintain a positive attitude and not speak ill of anyone, which is admirable considering that I would have just headbutted everyone in the dick because she's at the perfect height to do that. <laughs> On October 2nd, 1850, at 66 years old, Sarah Biffin passed away. Aww. She is buried in St. James Churchyard in Liverpool, England. The epitaph on her grave reads as follows. Reader pause, which I like that's an immediate demand. You fucking pause and read this shit, okay? Deposited beneath are the remains of Sarah Biffin, who was born without arms or hands at Quantic's Head County of Somerset, 25th of October, 1784, died at Liverpool, 2nd of October, 1850. Few have passed through the veil of life so much the child of hapless fortune as the deceased, and yet possessor of mental endowments of no ordinary kind, gifted with singular talents as an artist, thousands have been gratified with the able productions of her pencil, whilst versatile conversation and agreeable manners elicited the admiration of all. This tribute to one so universally admired is paid by those who were best acquainted with the character it so briefly portrays. Do any inquire otherwise, the answer is supplied in the solemn admission, admission? I'm too drunk for this, of the apostle. Now, no longer the subject of tears, her conflict and trials are o'er. That it says Ower. I'm not that drunk. I know. <laughs> In the presence of God, she appears. So basically, she was this incredible person who was dealt a shitty hand, and nevertheless she persisted, and now like all the suffering is over. Mm-hmm. Legacy. So her con- so contemporary artists really admire her work and they praise it. But regardless of the obstacles she had to overcome. She is, she's a testament to how people are able to adapt and persevere in daunting situations. By all accounts, she shouldn't have survived infancy. That alone is incredible. And then she became this incredible artist. Let alone living in like a poor village where her parents had no idea what the fuck they were doing. Yeah. And then getting picked up by a sideshow, you know, treated her like shit. Yeah. Yeah. And then becoming this incredible artist who these people revered. She painted queens and kings and history heroes. Like, it's insane. And I'm sure Emmanuel was not the best guy, but we do also need to acknowledge the fact that had he not spotted her, I don't, she probably wouldn't have become the incredible artist she did. No one would have found her. So, just acknowledgement. So, yeah, that is Sarah Biffin. The armless, legless artist of the stars. Yeah. So it was a little happier than yours. Yeah, it was. It it, it kind of ended on like a middle note. Yeah, it was you know. Just, you know. And I want to give a shout out to Rejected Princesses because that's where I found her. <laughs> I, I love that. Site. I did not find mine on Rejected Princesses. This yours time. was a recommendation, wasn't mine. it? No. Oh. The person I mentioned in 
it that the Margaret Bork White was a recommendation, and I will cover her later. But this specific person wasn't. So if you recommended Margaret, tune in because she's coming up. At some point. At some point. She's on my list. We have such a long list. It's Guess crazy. What? You can go first. Oh, what I are get you to thankful go first. for? Oh God, what am I thankful for? Um, well, I'm thankful for a couple things. So I mentioned before, my mom had a hip replacement, and she's doing very well. She recently took like an almost hour long walk with her walker, yeah, that's which impressive. is significantly better than she was getting around before my mom's always been this very like healthy independent woman and for her to suddenly have all these horrible mobility issues was really hard for her but also i had dinner at my parents the other night and i just about shit a brick because i see my dad and the whole like left side of his face is bruised like his around his jaw and neck and what he's happened? got a black eye and immediately i'm thinking he fell down the fucking stairs oh my god this is like this is one of those signs of you he's know getting old yeah he had oral surgery because he needs an implant and they needed to like do something oh, with Jesus. his jaw and he's like yeah this is just what it looks like i looked a lot worse before and i'm like I probably would have had a heart attack had I seen you before, and I had no idea it happened. Right? It was just casual. Kind of glad I didn't. <laughs> but he's doing well. My mom's doing well. And I'm really thankful that, you know, even as they're getting up there in age, they're doing very well health-wise. So I'm thankful for my family's health. Kelly? No. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Um, there have been a lot of things that have been happening in my life obviously because that's why we didn't have record last week but a lot of them are not necessarily coming to fruition but they're at least an end date in sight like you can i can see the light at the end of the tunnel type of thing and i'm really thankful for that because some of the shit's been going on for like two years and i'm like i'm done versus to be done ambiguous anxiety when is this going to be over right so, yeah, and there's, like, a few things that are all kind of heading in that direction at once, and it's it's kind of nice just being like, okay, there's movement, like, I know what's going on. So, yeah. And I'm, I'm thankful not, for that, which is kind of weird. And I'm not about to say this because I'm like, you should be happy, but just to reassure you, you have an amazing support network around you of people who love you and care for you and are here for you including our listeners right guys right yes yes (laughs) i demand it pause reader (laughs) (laughs) well we'd like to thank you all for listening and joining us again now that we're back Please hit us up on Facebook at Whining About Herstory and Instagram at WAHpod. Um, we also have a Twitter, which is WAH underscore pod, uh, a website, whiningaboutherstory.com, and an email, whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. Please feel free to uh, send us your herstory heroes, whether they're modern day or forgotten in history or really whatever we'd love to hear your stories or just hear from you in general and then uh please rate us five stars wherever you listen it's the easiest thing in the world go do it you'll feel better about yourself right write us a review tell us what you like we really appreciate it it means a lot to us because remember people empowered women empower women we love you all for listening So thank you so much for listening. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.